And as you know, the Gospel reading is where uh, uh, we've been in the last few weeks. And this is the last of the series of questions, of exams, so to speak, that the um, religious leaders were putting towards Jesus. Now, if you remember the context, Jesus entered into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey. And the crowds were, you know, uh, it was the peak of his popularity. The crowds acclaimed him and acknowledged him as Messiah. And uh, therein lies the problem because, you know, there was a sense in which uh, it seemed to threaten the religious leaders. And I don't know if you've ever been through a series of exams or, you know, an oral exam sometimes I think is worse than a, a written exam. I, I had to do an oral exam as I cleared my, my doctoral thesis. And, um, you know, I, at the end of it, it was only two hours, but at the end of it, you know, <laughs> you really feel a sense of relief, not just because you cleared it, but it, it's under pressure. You have to answer, you know, questions that are there. And some of the questions uh, easily stump you. And in some sense, you know, I can almost imagine that's what Jesus was going through because this was the last of the questions uh, that came up. And you know what? As Christians, in a sense, we are also going to be subject to this. Uh, there is a, 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 I, I have this growing sense, and I think most of us see, that society is moving further and further away from what we would consider uh, godly standards of living. Um, that there are ways in which people think that are so counter what Scripture teaches us, that at some point we're going to have to answer questions about our faith. And certainly that is uh, uh, sort of what's going on here, but I, I want to uh, get into the passage itself. Let me try and pull up my... Yeah. Uh, uh, the passage itself to see what we can learn uh, from here. In verse 34... Passage begins, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And it was now a Pharisee's convention. All right, They came to him in different groups and couldn't seem to stump Jesus. In fact, Jesus you know, uh, turned the tables on them. And now they, uh, it's their final push, so all of them gathered together to ask him this question. And they sent a lawyer, not a lawyer really uh, in our sense of what a lawyer is, but an expert in the law of God, in the Torah. And asked him this question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, uh, in Jesus' day and amongst the religious set, this was a hot topic question. Right? As you know, uh, the Old Testament, the Torah, lists a whole bunch of laws, not just in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy where the Ten Commandments are given, but you see in Leviticus and in the rest of Deuteronomy, you know, there are elaborations on the law. And, you know, since that time that the law was given, uh, they had come up in their own uh, teachings, whole uh, interpretations of the law. And, you know, the, they were experts in law-keeping. And at the end of the day, they were asking the question, how do you rank them? Which is the greatest? Which is the least? Which is the most important to meet? Which is the, because, let's be frank, if we had to keep all the law, it would be next to impossible as uh, 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 an exercise. And why were they uh, asking this question? You know, I think the secret is found in um, Luke's account of this uh, encounter. It was different in that 
um, the, the lawyer or the expert in the law asks the question, what must I do to uh, earn eternal life? What must I do to gain eternal life? Therefore, there was this question, you know, how do I keep the law such that God accepts me and is pleased with me and ultimately grants me eternal life? That was the question that underlie, uh, uh, underlies this question. And this is how Jesus answered, which we know very well, right? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. In Deuteronomy, its version is your, your might or your strength. And immaterially, I mean, you know, all of it encapsulates the concept that heart, soul, mind are not rigid compartments that you can divide out. Basically, the understanding and, and, and the intent is this. Will you love God with your entire person? All of who you are. Is your love uh, um, oriented towards God? And then the second commandment, you know, some people like to divide it out and say, oh, it's three commandments, right? Because you not only love your neighbor, you have to love yourself. Well, for Jesus, loving self was assumed. <laughs> it's not, all of us, in that way, self-love is not really an issue for us. You know, there is this uh, um, self-orientation uh, that we automatically love self. The problem is loving our neighbor as ourselves. And this is the law. This is on which the law and the prophets all hang. We are familiar with it because in our, especially our Holy Communion service, right, we always read the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That on these hang the entire law and prophets. And if we could keep these two laws, that's it. We have kept the whole law. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, even though we know what is demanded of us, we often struggle to carry it out. That the law has no power to give us the ability to carry out the law. Knowing what we ought to do doesn't mean we necessarily do it. And what's interesting as we carry on in this passage is now Jesus turns the question around upon them. He's thinking to himself, now that you're all gathered together, since I've got you all here, let me ask you a question. <laughs> what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. It's a question in which they, he asks them, who is the Messiah? Who are you expecting as the Messiah? And to them, they said, the son of David, because they are thinking, what we need is a political saviour. A saviour just as David was, who united the kingdom, who you know, was really the golden age of Israel, when you know, uh, um, uh, the territorially they were the largest in a sense. Of course, it was even greater under Solomon, but David, in their minds, was the one who set Israel on the right path, right, uh, to ascendancy. And so their minds, and uh, uh, scripturally, it does point to the fact that it is the son of David that is to come as the Messiah. But then he, he questions them, then how is it that David, in the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, calls the Lord, saying, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Right? And no one was able to answer him a word. From that day, anyone didn't, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That it, it, was, it was the end of the matter because they realized there was no way they can <laughs> trick Jesus. There's no one who knew more about the law than Jesus did and who fully understood God's purposes in the law. Right? They were being challenged as to what their expectations, what their thinking was. Because in their minds, they were looking for a political saviour. And I, I would imagine part of what they were thinking is that, you know, if this Messiah comes and liberates us from the Romans, then we would finally find our true place of leadership. Because right now, they were still subject to Roman rule. If there were, uh, um, you know, a, a, a restoration of Israel, then as religious leaders, we would once again be in the ascendancy. And this is why they were so threatened. With Jesus' rise in popularity, either A, you know, um, they will not uh, uh, find themselves in um, the right place because they always found themselves opposing Jesus, or, I guess in their minds, the, the worst outcome for them would be, you know, this rebellion will be quashed. That the Romans won't stand for it. And then in quashing the rebellion, all the Jews will be subject again to even harsher rule. And that is what uh, was uh, a, struggling, uh, a struggle for them. At the end of the day, as you think about it, you know, the Pharisees fully understood this great commandment. They didn't dispute with him, they agreed with him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. And yet, just because they knew the law, doesn't necessarily mean they could fulfil the law. That they had their own warped ways of thinking, you know, and own um, uh, um, um, interpretations of the law, largely because their desires led them down a different path. That is the nature of uh, our, our human um, propensity to go with what our heart desires. As, as I've shared with you before, Thomas Cranmer understood this principle because he knew that what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind ultimately justifies. That we're not necessarily led uh, by rational thinking. And I'm not saying this is irrational, but I'm saying, you know, our rationalizations are really uh, because of our inbuilt desires. I've shared with you the book by uh, Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison, and he talks about the cruelty of heresy. And in it, he points out that, you know, we are often attracted to heresy, to false teaching is another way of talking about heresy, because of our tendency to pursue how we want it to be, rather than accepting the way God has provided for us. And he points out that our fallen natures 
lead us into the blind alleys of self-indulgence and escape from life. And that at the heart of hearts, our heresies pander to the most unworthy tendencies of the human heart. You know, as someone once said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, isn't it? And as we uh, move and operate in society today, you know, there is a, a sense in which we are also very much subjected to the thinking in the order of the day. We are all um, victims of modernity, of the Enlightenment. If you look into the Enlightenment deeper, there was a famous French philosopher and mathematician by the name of René Descartes. And his uh, famous dictum was cogito ergo sum, which ultimately means, I think, therefore, I am. If you want to uh, understand what he means by that, basically he's saying, you are what you think. That uh, uh, this is part of our modern blinkers, right? That we are thinking things. That's all we are. That all you have to do is to think correctly and therefore you will do correctly. And you know what? As Christians, we're not exempt from this. There is a tendency for us, as, and I include myself, that we think that discipleship is a discipleship of the mind. That all we need to do is to have more and better teaching. Now, Hear me carefully. Eh? I'm not saying it's wrong to have good teaching. You know, by gifting, I'm a teacher. And certainly, we uh, uh, engage in good biblical teaching and Bible studies. Absolutely necessary. I'm not saying it's unnecessary. But there is this tendency for us to think that just because I know what ought to be done, I will do the right thing. Just because I have gained in knowledge... Therefore, my behavior will change. But you see, that assumes that all we are is our mind. The truth is, we are more than that. That our desires are actually what lead us. And I'm not talking about emotions necessarily, but it's talking about an orientation where our loves are oriented. I encountered this recently uh, in, in, in terms of um, uh, an encounter with uh, uh, someone who comes from the West and they had written a letter, not to me personally, but it was uh, something that I was made aware of and talking about, uh, 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 it had to do with LGBTQ issues and how this person ought to be accepted and considered for ordination or you know, uh, uh, leadership in the church, even though they had uh, started a, a, a same-sex relationship and um, you know, uh, uh, proclaim that this is who they are. And the assumption is this, that every human being has equal dignity and worth and is entitled to be loved, respected, and accepted as they are and for who they are. And therefore, the thinking goes, you know, if God made them that way, then it must be right. It must be good. Now, there is a kernel of truth in the assumption that God accepts us as we are. That's true. Absolutely. We can only come to Him as we are. But God does not leave us as we are. Right? That's the heart of Christianity. We come to Him as we are, our warts and all, as sinners. But in being saved by grace, He does not leave us as we are. That God 
transforms us, that He desires better for us, that He wants to change us more and more into the likeness of His Son. The faultiness of that sort of thinking, you know, comes from uh, um, this uh, Cartesian uh, thinking that, you know, ultimately our reason rules. And they often uh, set aside biblical truth by saying, oh, science tells us otherwise now. Because scientists tell us that, you know, there's some innateness to these uh, sexual attractions. Therefore, we have to accept them. The Bible has always told us there is something innate in us that's disordered, right? Not just people who have same-sex attractions. All of us have loves that are disordered. That is the heart of the human condition. And that is why, you know, we uh, don't just love God with our mind. We also love God with our hearts and with our souls and with all our being. Because all of it needs to be reformed. You know, just because we think ourselves intelligent is not necessarily uh, um, uh, uh, cure in and, of, in and of itself. I'm reminded by this uh, Alcoholics Anonymous dictum, which they often use to talk about uh, um, the fact that our thinking is not enough. You know, because they say to each other, it's your best thinking that got you here. <laughs> Isn't that right? that in their minds, they thought the best solution would be self-medication, either through alcohol or drugs or some other substance. And they find themselves in a place where they are, you know, uh, slaves to their addictions. And that's true of all of us, you know, our best thinking gets us here. Now, let me talk a little bit about this um, propensity for us to be uh, seeing discipleship as being just discipleship of the mind. Because, you know, in the book of uh, Philippians, Paul says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. You know, when we read this verse, and maybe not you, but certainly me, what often stands out to us is the fact that, you know, God's desire is that we will have more and more knowledge and more and more discernment. Because that's our tendency, because we tend to think of ourselves as thinking things. But if you actually read the verse carefully, what Paul is saying is that his prayer is that our love may abound more and more. And that as our loves are rightly ordered, ultimately our understanding and our discernment increases. That as we uh, 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 align ourselves to God, then we really begin to understand what it is that God wants and desires of us. I've pointed out from the start that, you know, Ultimately, God's Word comes to us in law and gospel. And the law is God's good Word to us, and it's necessary. But the law in and of itself does not lead us to change. Why? Because, let's be frank, the law, actually, what it leads us to, if we really truly understand the law, 
is it leads us to fear. Fear of judgment because we recognize that we fall short. It points out to the fact that, you know, our best attempts fall far short of God's standards. The Apostle John understood this. Why John, from the start of his letter, his first letter, he says, right, that um, um, if, you say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in that context, He says, you know, therefore walk in the light as He is in the light. Then we can have fellowship with one another. A, a willingness to be honest about our condition is the way in which we actually get to the heart of the matter. And later on in chapter 4, he, if that's not clear enough, he points out and he says to us, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, if you stop and you think about this for a moment, what does this engender in you? If we are truly honest, if we are really, really honest, we would acknowledge that all of us struggle with this. Which indicates that we actually struggle with knowing God. That our loves are disordered. You know, Jesus in uh, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount talked about loving neighbor and he said, yes, it's right you love your neighbor, but it goes beyond that. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and use you spitefully. And all of us, if we are honest with ourselves, <laughs> that is a bridge too far for most of us. I, for all of us. If you stop for a moment and think about people whom you would label, for example, as toxic, or people who have used you or abused you in some way or other, who've hurt you, who have been unkind to you, Is it really possible to love? You know, and if we take God at His law and at His word, at its very basic, ultimately what this should engender in us is fear of judgment. Right? But that's not necessarily a bad thing. The Bible says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I love Bishop Fitz Ellison because he has a way of, you know, uh, unpacking things. He's written another book called Fear, Love and Worship. And in that book, he points out that the fear of God often functions uh, spiritually how pain functions in the physical. You realize that pain is a necessary part of life. That pain points us to the fact that, you know, uh, something is unwell uh, in us. 
That the pain tells us that there's something wrong. It gives us an indication. The problem when we don't have pain is, you know, uh, um, um, an example of a person who can't feel pain is a person who has leprosy, right? It's actually a, a nervous uh, a problem with the nerves. And they can't feel pain. They often end up injuring parts of the body without realizing it, you know. They could leave their hand on the stove and it gets burned. And because of that lack of pain, <laughs> you know, you, you end up um, 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 creating more problems than it's worth. And he points out that fear is likewise a sign and signal of our need for God's love. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because it opens up our understanding and opens up our clear, desperate need for the gospel. That's why, you know, when we read the summary of the law, when we uh, um, um, go through the Ten Commandments in our liturgy, Thomas Cramer understood that, you know, the problem is not whether we know what we ought to do. The problem is with our hearts. That's why we are told to respond when we hear it. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Incline our hearts to keep this law. That's why John continues in this passage. He says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. As He is, so also are we in this world. That our confidence is in the fact that when Jesus died on the cross for us, a divine exchange took place. Not only was our sin placed upon Him, Jesus' righteousness was also put upon us. So that when God looks at us as He is, as Jesus is, so also are we. That's why He says to us, You are my son, you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Not because we have kept the law, but because Jesus has. And that's why John continues, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. What is perfect love? Or more accurately, who is perfect love? It's Jesus. Right? Jesus on the cross demonstrates for us God's love. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But we love because He first loved us. You know that as we hear the law of God, it points out that we desperately need to understand His gospel. That the change takes place not because we understand what we ought to do. Change takes place because in understanding and acknowledging and allowing God's love to penetrate our hearts, it changes us. Humanly speaking, you know, how can you not love someone who loves you so much? And that is the transforming power of the gospel. Not that the gospel ignores our sin. In fact, it takes a sin and it amplifies it. Right? The law points out how far we've fallen short. If we don't understand how much God has forgiven us, then our love can never really reach the full measure in which God we can never fully comprehend God's immense love for us. 
That's why we understand that love grows as a response to God's love. You know, today as you hear this word, I hope that in, on the one hand, if God has convicted you, that you don't remain in that conviction unchanged, but that that conviction leads you back to the cross, to saying and acknowledging, Lord, I need you desperately. But that as we come to that, and as we pray the prayer, you know, Amen, Lord, have mercy on us, incline my heart to keep this law, that ultimately it is a prayer that says, Lord, captivate my heart. You know, establish in, our, in me your throne. Help me, Lord, to fully enthrone you in all that I am and all that I do. And it's in that context that ultimately we can really give ourselves wholly and fully to Him. And I think that's what we really need to hear. And that's how we all need to respond. Let's take a moment just to reflect on His Word in prayer. To allow God to speak to us. For those of us who've been struggling and with self-doubt and condemnation, hear God's word and understand that there is now therefore no condemnation to those of us in Christ Jesus. But on the flip side, those of us who are complacent and continue to live our lives as if God doesn't exist, I pray that God will challenge us and show us our desperate need for Him. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You bid us come. All those of us who are weary and heavy laden, you call us to come because you offer us rest. Rest from our travails, rest from our challenges, rest from the things that test us. And Lord, we ask that as we walk with you, that you continue to reveal yourself to us in ways that only you can that we may behold you in the beauty of holiness, that your holiness would open our eyes to your loveliness. How you, as a holy God, gave yourself to us to restore our relationship with you. And may that break, Lord, the hardness of our hearts. Help us, Lord, to respond 
appropriately to you. Help us, Lord, to truly enter into a love relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Father. These things we ask in your Son's most precious name. All God's people say, Amen.